0: This is the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast, and I'm your host, Amanda G. So happy. Every single time I get to do an intro, I'm so excited. I always get to bring y'all news, get to share something good, get to feel like we're connecting, and I love it so much. Um, We do have a really awesome episode for y'all, but before we get to that, we like to do, I do quick announcements. I don't take too long. Um, i like to do some announcements. We do have merch now, right before the holiday season. We teamed up with Tee Public, T-E-E-Public, and we have a Near and Queer to My Heart storefront on there. We'll put the links on our social media, so don't worry about writing it all down. We got you. Uh, we got a lot of cool stuff. We got face masks. I just ordered mine. We got shirts. We got mugs, pillows, pins, magnets, whatever you want. Uh, we have our Queer Heart the unicorn, that's our mascot, that's our logo. We have that design in multicolors with the podcast information without it, if you just like Queerheart on his own. We also have a couple other designs, and we're about to launch some more. So check that out. Check out TeePublic. Support us. Send us some love. We appreciate it. Now this episode, I'm really excited. We have Janet Quinonez, who's coming to us from Los Angeles it's been really cool. Uh, you know, I'm trying to look at the good things about quarantine, uh, which is prior to quarantine, we recorded in person pretty much every episode. And since quarantine, we've gone remote. We've had no choice so that we could record safely. And so this has allowed us to connect with folks all over the country and hopefully in the future of the world. So we've had a lot of really good conversations with folks that uh, we might not have been able to otherwise, or we might not have been able to link up. So very excited about that. Janet is a writer and a stand-up out of Los Angeles. She runs her own show, Drunk Logs, which she'll talk about. We're just so so happy to get to know her. Yeah, let's get this party started. Here's Janet. Hi, Janet. Hi. How's it going? Janet Quinonez, did I get it? Yes, you did. Yes. Okay, I've been practicing that for the last three minutes. <laughs> I'm always so nervous because I, I know it's important to get everyone's names right. And I'm so happy that you're here. And I'm so happy that we're doing this podcast. Are you in LA right now?
1: Yeah, I'm in uh, Los Angeles. It is beautiful today. What What is it like there in
0: uh, New Orleans? It's actually today was a really nice day. It's been up and down. Our weather is really weird. I mean, luckily, we had all these potential hurricanes coming our way this summer. Mm -hmm. We're like, what else? What else can 2020 bring? Let's say the most hurricanes (laughs) ever in the last 100 years. Cool. Yeah, I know. We were fortunate that none of them directly came our way.
1: I mean, same here, but just substitute hurricanes with fires. And uh, oh, yeah. yeah, and earthquakes. We had earthquakes um, during this time, too, during the last
0: months. You know, I'm originally from L.A. And they're like, why would you leave L.A. and go to New Orleans? There's hurricanes. And I'm like, I grew up with earthquakes. If you live in the Northeast, you have winter. Yeah. My roommate had just moved to Detroit. And he said that the weather's 30 degrees right now and that the sun isn't out at 8 a.m.
1: Yeah. I don't think I can live anywhere that I have to heat up the car before I can drive it. Like, isn't there like an engine block heater or something that you have to get or that you need snow tires? I I don't. I think that's my my limit.
0: Yeah, there's that. And then if your car's covered in snow, you got to dig it out. Yeah. I used to live in New York and sometimes the snow plow that would plow the street would just plow the snow onto your car. (laughs) <laughs> real fun to deal with yeah you're like thanks a lot yeah i'm like oh i can't wait to get out of here to a place where there's no winter yeah they just make it look so beautiful on television
1: oh gosh i i've been in new york when it was like i guess january well, i've been there for a few new year's Eves, and not i don't do the times square thing but but uh it'll be to go to shows or to see uh friends and I I can't do the, I can't do that cold. I'm like, what, why did I think this was a good idea? Like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) I just want to kick myself but I do it anyway so have
0: you ever wanted to do the Times Square thing not really
1: <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. I think when I was little back when like Dick Clark was doing the New Year's Rockin Eve thing I think I probably like everybody you see it and you think wow that would just be magical and then I think all it takes is to hear about how people wear diapers so that they don't have to go to the bathroom because there's nowhere to go to the bathroom and you're like mm, I'll pass I think I can yeah. just watch it on television.
0: <laughs> I'm just thinking, because you see them all night and you're like, they're really just waiting for 10 seconds. Yeah.
1: Having been there, and I mean, within blocks of it, because I usually, when I'm there, I'm staying close to Madison Square Garden. I can safely say it's, I'm not, you're not missing anything. It's so, I mean, you know, it, I guess if, if it's on your list to do though, I mean, do it, but you know, then you can re- report back and tell us all about the diaper experience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Once you leave, like you can't get back in. But then if everyone's got diapers, like I'm not down for that. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> it's just something about that idea <laughs> that it's like you really got to want to do something bad if if you're willing to go to that length, right
0: yeah i guess maybe maybe that gives them a good new year maybe the wrong people went for the countdown to 2020 and this is what happened yeah maybe we we (laughs) should have been there
1: yep now we're cursed
0: (laughs) well i'm still not going next year so i guess we'll be cursed
1: again Yeah. You know, the idea of, of being in a crowd right now or any kind of, it just seems like such a far fetched thing that I can't even imagine what that would look like. Yeah. That, it, you know, and when we'll even feel that that is something to do again. I don't know.
0: It, I mean, it's weird because, you know, we perform and we're used to, like, I'm used to performing in crowds and being crowds and talking to strangers. But the other day I went to the grocery store and it was so packed I couldn't find a spot that I just went home. Yes.
1: You're like, nope. I've done that too. There was actually, it was a store and I don't know why this particular day was like this, but there was a line outside and people were waiting to get in. This was in like June, July, but it wasn't like at the beginning of the pandemic. It was sort of into, you know, like June, July timeframe. And I was like, what the hell? And I thought, no, that's okay. Whatever it is, I'll just figure it out on my, I don't need anything this bad. Like I can wait. So, but I still don't know why it was like that this one day. I think maybe they just decided to, they were, I think, letting only a few people in at a time. Uh. So I still don't get it, but you know, yeah, I've done that. It's so funny that you say that, that it's like, yeah, you're used to being out and about and in in the mix of people. And then you see like too many cars at a grocery store and you're like, that's okay.
0: Yeah. And it was like a panic and an anxiety. And I'm like envisioning what this grocery store looks like and how I'm going to have to maneuver. And if somebody's touching a vegetable too much, I'm going to just go into an all out panic. And I was like, I can't. And I was never that person. Like it never phased me.
1: Yeah. I think we all are now a little bit to some extent. You know, like I live in a building, I'd say there's eight apartments in this building and I get Freaked out if like I get in the elevator and somebody's not wearing a mask and they're because they, you know they're probably just going to their car so they're not thinking about it or they're thinking oh I'll put it on when I'm you know I'm gonna be by myself I'm not gonna run into anybody since it's such a small building but then like you see each other and it's like you're you both just stare at each other for a second like <laughs> what's happening right now you know
0: yeah and then do you say anything or do you just say it with your eyes because you know
1: I say it with my <laughs> eyes. <laughs> I do. And I and we have thought about it because it's happened a few times. And we always we're like crazy, you know, rule followers and that kind of type. So I, I am going to wear a mask, even if it's just to open up the door and throw out a garbage bag or something. So I don't know, we haven't gotten to the point of, of thinking we need to say something. But I, I guess if it were became a big deal. But like I said, it's a small building. So it doesn't happen that often. But you are sort of like oh, everybody else thinks we're just like the walls of Corona or the front door of the building, I guess. (laughs) And anywhere (laughs) in here is okay, I suppose.
0: It's your involuntary pod.
1: Yeah, like, right. I think that's what they're thinking. I don't know what they're thinking, but. I know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I'm wearing a mask in the elevator.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I don't play. I don't play around because I just I want this to stop. Like,
1: I don't. Right. Right. I know.
0: However, it's going to stop. I'm like, lock us. And everyone, every time I talk to someone about this, they're like, "Okay, you're going a little nuts. But I'm like, just lock us down for two weeks. Like, let's all just suck it up. You can't go anywhere unless it's the hospital. And you yeah. just stay home for two weeks, and then we can kick this versus this up and down. You know, we open bars, close bars, just reopen them. We've done that here too. And I remember when this all first started, because I was in Louisiana this whole time. And L.A. had originally said, hey, we're closing down till September. Yeah. And this was back in, I think, March or maybe early April. And everyone here was like, oh, September. Look at those L.A., the California yeah, people. Overkill.
1: <laughs> I know. You know, I had, and this is like a sidebar thing, so I won't get into it too much, but I had a reason to go to, to Texas because of some family stuff that was happening. And the difference was so drastic. It was night and day. But luckily... Like my dad would, I would basically say, dad, just whatever they're doing here, it's going to go this way. So just like take advice as we're doing everything. If it seems like overkill, fine, but just know that that we're trying to do the most cautious thing. And he sort of took heed of that and was a lot more careful than I think he might have otherwise been. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And he's older. So there's some comorbidity things. So yeah, I'm, I, uh. Uh, it was a, it was a really strange thing to experience two different states going through it, and this was a I visited one time during when you had to fill out a form. There was like two people on the plane and then there would be a DPS officer meeting each plane and you had to go and give them a piece of paper to say why you were here, how long you were staying, what you know, like what's your business here. It was really kind of crazy and a little out there just to have to experience that. And then now you would not even know that that had ever happened.
0: Yeah, well, it's important to get this economy back up and running. Yeah. I was like, well, we might not have anyone for the economy. <laughs> <That's>...
1: Right? <laughs> but by <laughs> God, the stores will be open. Yeah.
0: Well, um, so I know you- you live in LA now, but where, where'd you grow up? Where, where are you from originally? Yeah.
1: So originally I'm from uh, Texas and I was born in Austin. And then my dad is a, or well, he's retired from this now. He does, he has another job, but he was um, like a countertop guy, kitchens and baths kind of stuff. And so we traveled around a lot in Texas when I was a kid, because he would always go wherever the boom town was, whatever, you know, and it was Houston for in the eighties. It was it was Atlanta in the nineties. So we sort of moved around a bit, but mainly Texas. I spent some of my high school years in Atlanta, and then a little bit of time. Uh, we'll get into the relationship stuff, I'm sure. But <laughs> I was married at the time and lived in Charleston for a number of years.
0: Okay. Because I, I knew um, just, you know, from looking at your website that you, you know, spent time in Austin. I didn't know if you grew up there because I've i actually never met anybody that like grew up in Austin. I just know adults that, you know, flocked to Austin. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: you know, that's, that is one thing that I'm so... Proud to be from Austin, and that like even though my family moved around a bit in Texas, Austin's home because that's where my you know uh, my dad is now. My mom passed away this year. That's you know that's home. That's where I'd say ninety percent of my family lives, and I'm just I'm so thrilled to be from a place that's known for you know the industry that I'm ended up that I've ended up working in.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry to hear about your mom.
1: Yeah, I don't want to be a downer, but yeah, my mom, it wasn't, um, she had uh, breast cancer uh, about 10 years ago, and it was a, a metastatic breast cancer. So it actually metastasized to her liver. And I found out about this at the beginning of ever all this stuff that we're talking about in February, and it was pretty far advanced. So and she passed away in, at the end of May. So it hasn't been that long, but let me tell you, all I could say is, we would have to have a whole separate, hour of or more than that to discuss everything that happened. So I'll just say I'm writing a script about it because it is, if you can imagine going through that and death and um, grief brings out sometimes the worst in a family that has a lot of dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And so in our case, it was just a magnifying
0: glass. I mean, everything was just amplified. You have a pandemic going on. So everybody's already on high alert and already in a different state than they would be in.
1: Yeah, it was, it was something. I mean, my dad, well, in the middle of all of it, my dad was like, Janet, you got to write a script about this. And I'm like, don't worry it's, it, I'm on it. <laughs> it's like. It's not, I mean, that's how I process the things that happen in my life anyway. So this is no different. You know, it'll probably take me some time to get through it and lots of therapy. But, uh, you know, it'll hopefully result in something someday. So
0: yeah. So, um, so I know you said you spent some time in high school in Atlanta, where did you end up? Finishing high school.
1: In Atlanta. We moved around so much that I was in outside all in Texas until we got I got to I guess I was going into my freshman year of high school. You know, my parents decided to take a chance and move to Atlanta. And that was the big boom town at the time. It was um late eighties, early nineties. And yeah, so we picked up and, and moved there. And I think there's something too to being a kid of whether you're like a military kid where you're moving around a lot or you have another reason to do that, that it does something to you as far as, I don't know if I'd like to think it it somehow strengthens you because you have to learn how to adapt very quickly. It feels like the end of the world when you have to move around as a kid because you've just, you know, you're leaving behind friends and family and people that you've established these formative relationships with. But it does something to you that just, I think it makes you highly like adaptable and you sort of just learn to get on with it. And I don't know, at least I do it for me. I think that it did that at the time I was, I thought it was the end of the world, but yeah. Cause I mean, I had gone to school from, I guess almost like more, not kindergarten, but like first grade through, I guess it would have been Well, first we moved to Dallas before we went to Atlanta, but for like all of my elementary school years were spent in one place. So to leave those people right as you were going into puberty, oh, oh. It was just it was horrible, and then we moved again very shortly after. So it was a lot of bouncing around. And
0: yeah, it's hard enough just to you know move to junior high and be like the new kid, be at the bottom of the totem pole, but also to be new to the city, new to the culture. Yeah,
1: it was it was a culture shock. It was a big difference in Texas and um, Georgia's educational systems too. Not not to it was I just remember that even the simple stuff like things that you took in uh, like a freshman in high school you might take as a senior there, and vice versa. So I had taken some classes that I was then now going to have to like go back and take it with different people in different grades. It was really weird, but it worked out. It didn't kill me, but it was also, you know, very stressful.
0: Yeah. Well, I kind of, I would have loved that in high school if I'm like, I already did this.
1: Yeah. But then you're also like, wait a minute, why are you different?
0: In high school, it's, there's, you feel like there's the stress of the world is on your shoulders.
1: Yeah. And not to I don't know if you, know this just from reading the bio or whatever, but um, I'm Mexican. So there's also the like in coming from Texas, where, you know, there's plenty of Latinos, (laughs) you know, there's like not, you're not anything different. You're just part of a group of uh, kids that are going to this school in Georgia, it was very much literally black and white. So for me to come into the school, it was kind of like, what do we do with you? It didn't feel like you were, you fit in anywhere. And I distinctly remember why they did this. I don't know, but they had a a report where they were giving the percentages of the kids at the school. It was like a, a yearly annual, whatever. They were doing some sort of report and why they were telling us over the morning announcements. I don't know, but they were like, okay, so the, you know, we've come back with the report for this year and it's, I think it was like 49 percent white and 50 uh, percent black and 1 percent other in the school that I was in in it, in my high school. They just say other. Uh, yes, and so I was like, oh, so like me and like the one Chinese person in the class are like looking at each other, like I guess
0: that's us. They literally othered you. Yes,
1: <laughs> that's terrible. Now it's a lot different now. I guess this would have been in the late 80s, so it was sort of like. This is, you know, not not only from a, you know, what is correct and not correct to be, you know, have to make kids feel weird or whatever, but also just it's the actual makeup of the schools are, I'm sure, much different. I mean, it was like we were, you know, like this. Who are these people that are, you know, I remember my brother getting teased, too, in school because they didn't know what to make of him. I remember him specifically getting teased. They were making jokes and actually making slurs to my brother about being Asian. We're Mexican. So they didn't even know how to make fun of us properly, which was like a whole other issue. But at the same time, I have to say, I probably got off easy. I didn't really get... Actually I had more issues in Texas than I did anywhere else that I lived with regards to racism or bigotry,
0: really, yeah,
1: which is funny. you would think it would you know not be that way but but yeah, I had more more issues and when I was younger too as an older kid, I didn't seem to have and then put on top of that, um being overweight added to it, so there was like you would I had so many things. <laughs> targeted and I was I was pretty lucky in that way or maybe they were making fun of me and I just didn't know it but I didn't have I had my share of issues I won't say I didn't but but nothing that was you know so devastating as to have kept me from living my life
0: yeah I mean that's interesting that the school would would choose to were they proud of that was that like
1: I have no idea. I think it was just like, I still don't know what it was just like their annual report out of what the, you know, like, I have no idea why that was important to tell us as kids what the makeup of the school was. I just remember it being part of the morning announcements. And I was sitting there just kind of going, what? I mean, in Texas, gosh, we had corporal punishment. So it was also like the kids were a lot different. I'm not a um, advocate of corporal punishment for sure. But I will tell you, we were afraid in Texas to do something that you would get paddled. I mean, you got hit. Wow. In Texas.
0: Was that public school?
1: Yes. Yeah. It was, um, uh, again, you know, I'm a little older probably than the... Than maybe your average guest. No, I like but... we
0: our last guest. Let's see. I think she was sixty
1: three. Oh, okay. Well, then well, I'm I'm in good. Yeah,
0: I, I love <laughs> I love talking to everybody, but I also love people that are pre- still performing and and not still, but some people that started later came out later, like whatever it is. Like I like people that are doing this the stuff they want to do.
1: Yeah. Well, then I'm I'm right at home w- with you on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> because I those both apply to me. So um, do you want me to talk a little bit about the, the, the coming out as a late in life screenwriter or bisexual?
0: <laughs> <laughs> all, of, all of those things. Um, I'm always interested in um, folks, uh, you know, coming out journey. I generally ask the coming out question as a layered question as a, uh, because it's not just a singular moment. And it's uh, something that I know for me, I have to continuously do as a layered question as when did you come out to yourself? Uh, When did you start coming out to friends and family? Um, And then when, if there was a time that you decided to come out in public and incorporate that into your performance, or was that something that was always part of your performance Um, and kind of, you know, that journey. Cause I think, you know, I know for me, it's like, I always knew this thing, but I wasn't ready to be vocal about it or even to admit it to myself. And then once I did that, then it took time before, I did anything about that, you know? So there's this whole journey and this path that we take and it's not always just like, Oh, hi, I'm gay. And that's the whole thing. I, hi, I'm bi, I'm queer. I'm, you know, however someone identifies, it doesn't always just come like that quickly. I think, you know, it's more textured and layered. So yeah, I would love to, to hear about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't even, can I ask you, I don't even know that I know if you're what you're, what what you identify as. Yeah. um,
0: I identify as a lesbian
1: which I think is actually very refreshing that I don't know. (laughs) It's like, it's not because it's not like the core of, you know, for everybody. It's not like the most important thing about them. Usually it's like part of who you are, but it's not like I, at least for me, that's how I feel. But I like that. It wasn't like, yes, I know that you, you know, so I'm kind of glad that we did. not
0: Yeah. Well, that's what, you know, ultimately I would love for it to be that way. I would love you know, for me to just go anywhere and say, oh, this is my girlfriend and not have raised eyes yeah. or, you know, have any sort of anything different than a, you know, straight cis couple would right. have. But that's not the world that we live in. It's it's much better now um, in a lot of places, not in every place, but but it's not quite that way. So, you know, it, it identity is still, you know, very important and also choosing what moments to express that. You know, can be important.
1: For myself, like when I knew I was attracted to both sexes, and even now it's different than it was then, was when I was probably five years old. Like, first memories of being, like, I remember having a crush on my ballet teacher. Like, I had a ballet and tap teacher, dance teacher, and I thought I just was in love with her. My first uh, intimacy, like romantic intimacy, with another person, was with a little girl, and I think I was also about five. And I remember visiting. I remember her name was Eva, and she lived down the street from me, wherever I, I lived in Houston at the time. And I remember having like a like we were playing house, quote unquote, and we were kissing in her like a basement or something. I, it was a very vague memory, but it. I remember very, I remember that. And just to contrast it with, um, I remember also being around that age playing house with a little boy. And I remember telling him to, pr- he, I made him sit, at, we had this like little travel trailer in the back of our house and we were playing house in this travel trailer. And I said, um, okay, you go and read the paper at the kitchen table and I'm going to make dinner. And, you know, like I was basically bossing him around and telling him what his role was. And, but it's so funny that the house playing with the girl was kissing and, you know, stuff. But with him, it was like, (laughs) you be the man, do man stuff. Like basically reenacting what I saw with my parents, you know? So I just, that is hilarious to me now, but um, nothing has changed. (laughs) And then as far as coming out, I don't know that I ever have come out in a very public way, honestly. And I I think now that I'm because it happened for me so much when I was older that it's been a slow process because I think I was maybe in my 30s before I had um, sex with a woman and also felt romantic feelings for a woman, like true relationship feelings where I was like, oh, because I think I lived for a while as if I were straight and thought, I just appreciate women. I appreciate the female form. And I didn't think anything more of it because I got married so young. I got married when I was 19 or 20 and stayed married for 11 years. And that's a whole other, like I would love to talk more about that marriage and that relationship in respect of that person's privacy. I'll just say the marriage ended amicably and we're still friends and I do some stuff about it in my stand up. <laughs> so <laughs> And then I think I was, there was a period of time that I honestly drank very heavily and got to a point where I needed to get sober. And during the drinking was I think when I truly was opening myself to explore my sexuality in new ways that I hadn't been able to as a married person. And um, I hadn't been able to just as a human, I just had not explored anything. And I think it I was able to to do those things. Enough that I, I think I I remember probably a drunken phone call once to one of my relatives where my like one of my closest relatives And saying, "I think I'm bisexual or something," (laughs) she goes, "Oh, girl, we've been knowing that." (laughs) So it's funny that, like, you know, I'm thinking I'm doing this huge coming out thing, which really was just met with, like, "Oh, we know about."
0: Yeah, that—that's what's so funny is like, if this was like a TV show, there'd be a montage of like all the gay shit you've done all these years, and they're, you know, they're like softball and hiking and and Subaru and. And, and then and then you come back to like scene and they'd be like oh yeah of course you yeah know?
1: yeah all the little moments of like <laughs> realization and then the definitive for me coming out was to my parents it's funny because it was you know I was I think in both cases in my 40s and I said to one well I guess it's okay to say who was who but to my dad I was like it was not until I moved here and I we were just like walking down the street and something came up about sexuality or my friend, because I had a lot of gay friends when I was in high school. And I then I said something, then I I just felt the moment was right. And I said, you know, I am bisexual. And my dad was like, I don't want to know about that. (laughs) We just kept walking. (laughs) So it was like, it never, he didn't even miss a beat of like, you know, it was like, okay, Information received, like, I don't want to think about my daughter having sex at all anyway. Yeah. And then we just kept on keeping on.
0: Yeah, that's how, you know, So, so I think some dads are like, either, like, whoever you're with, I don't want to, we're not that close.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I honestly, um, I left out a very important part, which is that I remarried to a man in, it was 2015, so before we moved to um, to L.A., And I remember having a conversation with him because it's important, like as long as I'm authentic to myself and to others and I'm not hiding or or being secretive or anything like that, I feel like that's, I just have to be able to live in honesty. So as we were dating, I remember um, having a conversation with him where I said, I just want you to know that I'm, you know, I'm bisexual. I've been with women and men. And is that an issue for you? And it wasn't he was accepting of that. And so I was like, okay, well, I, you know, I did my due diligence here. <laughs> like i told you like, what's up? And so getting married, but I think even then, I don't think I was fully, maybe even accepting of my own sexuality, if that makes sense. Like I knew I was being honest and I was saying, but I didn't think much past that. I didn't think about what that might mean to then be married. And I think I'm still trying to figure it out. And I, I have some other um, bisexual friends that have this discussion around what it means to be bisexual and married in a seemingly heteronormative relationship, which I even hate that phrasing, but but that is what it is. And you're like, are you really though? Because you're not really, you know? And it's like, well, I'm in a monogamous relationship with this man and was before, you know, nothing has changed. The only discussion then was like, is like, are you going to be allowed to explore? Like, is this an open marriage or is this a monogamous relationship? Or uh, And so I almost jokingly would will say think I'm married to the one straight guy who is like mr. monogamy like he's like because mm. I've had friends that that are by or that are in open relationships and they they'll say oh well yeah but you can explore your sexuality with women right he I mean, doesn't prevent you from exploring your sexuality with women and I'm like yes he does <laughs> he's like what are you talking about like this is the what the uh, societal or whatever context or whatever you want to call it, but you know, I have to respect that that you know, I chose to be with this person and that's who I'm with. It doesn't turn off your sexuality. And that's what's so hard to communicate to people because you'll try to explain that it, they're like, well, you're not bisexual, you're straight because you're with him. And I'm like, that's not how sexuality works. And and I'm not even the best person to explain my own sexuality because I'm it's always changing with me and evolving. But I can tell you. It don't stop your sexuality. It doesn't stop who you are as a person. So I'm currently married to a man and still very much bisexual. So
0: I just hate when they say when people say, "Oh, well you're bisexual, so you should be able to still hook up with women."
1: If you're in a relationship where you've agreed that you're going to be monogamous
0: and regardless of who um, and I think there's I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and I think there's a lot of stereotyping You're around else. bisexuality, yes, I can't speak for you, but just in you know oh, yeah,
1: part of why, which I know we'll get into talking about like how how it relates to the like I'm a writer, I'm a performer, and when, you know, I write, I'm actually working on a screenplay now that's kind of obviously inspired by my own life and and choices and the things that I'm going through now and the why, you know, being with a man and this kind of thing. And it's like because all of the stories that I've seen and I'm sure there's a few that I'm that I don't want to say it's an all or nothing, but I don't want to generalize. But a lot of times the by character in a they're usually oversexed. Mm -hmm. They're usually being, uh, they're engaging in either slutty or risky behavior, or they're the, like the, they're like the sexual joke almost of something. That's not how it is with any, with all, you know, the people I know and not just bisexual, but just in general, like the LGBTQ community. It's like, I have plenty of friends that are, uh, for example, gay and sex is never, is not on their mind hardly. And they're, they're very not, I don't want to use the word prudish, but like that, like they're not, sex is not, it's like, oh, you know, I don't want to think about it.
0: Yeah. They're not, they're not, they're not going to the back room and yeah, like in yes. queer as folk. They just had like that back room. Yes, where the guys, it's like, that. That's not every gay male experience. Right. Like that's not, I think there is a lot of you know, misrepresentation in the media,
1: you know, as a writer, I get to, I get to write this, the story that I know, you know, which is, and I don't think I've even seen, you might know, I don't, if you do tell me, but like, I've not seen anything where there's a, about bisexual, a per, bisexual person who is married to the opposite sex. I'm sure there one exists, but like, that's what this feature I'm writing, which is my first feature I've written I've written a lot of television stuff, but nothing in uh, storytelling and essays and, and of course, stand up, but nothing of, of a feature. Like
0: the only character I can think of was in Transparent, the oldest daughter was married to a man, cheated on him with her ex-girlfriend. Then later they uh, got back with the guy, but they engaged in a relationship with another, another partner. Like it was, it was all of the stereotypes like put together. Into yeah. This one character essentially.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, that's the, how we're going to do take, ha- like handle that is, and it just happens a lot. I think it's just easy because it's, but so that's the perpetual, you know, the perpetual, that's what's the word perpetuating, I guess maybe the stereotype is just to, mm-hmm. you know, which that's what a good writer is gonna, you know, tell a story that's maybe something different that we haven't seen before. So that like maybe this bisexual character is a teacher and is pretty straight laced and it's just a and it's their sexuality is part of who they are, but it's not like the primary determining factor of every decision they make in life. You know, so I think that I would like to see it just be you
0: know yeah where the story arc isn't just the yeah. like I'm I'm bisexual is there the all the stereotypes that go along with it like that is yeah. just that's just part of who this person is and now we can get on with the actual story and the stuff that's happening
1: yeah I feel the same way about being Latinx because you're sort of like okay you know everybody's not the mama modern family or the you know <laughs> you know or whatever the things are the you know and that's but that's what I believe is the wonderful thing about writing television, film, or stage. If you're doing things for stage, it's like you get to tell a different story, and that actually does shape and affect how people think about groups of people, whether it's a race or a gender or whatever it is. You are, I don't know. It's like it's a big responsibility to do it thoughtfully, and I've been, my own. In my own writing, I have been challenged by others and have challenged others to do something different and like not do the, you know, lazy humor thing, which is to just be like, you know, insert racial joke thing. Yeah. It's like we don't have to make it a, you know, let's just be smarter than that. A good writer is going to find the funny thing.
0: Um, you know, like I said, I think the the B and the LGBTQ often gets gets overlooked or uh, gets put in its own you know, box that I don't think it should belong in. So I yeah. think it's important to just talk about that.
1: And, not, and then you, if you want to get even deeper into it, talking about the difference between if you're male bisexual or female bisexual or what that looks like
0: mm-hmm. is
1: also very different. And like, um, oh, you know, women, they're, you know, they're like, it's okay because, male, because males, you know, fantasize about that as a thing. And so that somehow it's okay. It's more palatable for just society to think about, Two women versus a man is with another man, but it says he's bisexual, then you're like, what? The whole idea, and you know, like, well, you really
0: must like one more than the other, right? Like, you know, that's yeah, so. that's the other thing. It's like, oh, you got to pick, like, yeah, <laughs> there, there's that, but yeah, I definitely, I've had, you know, people come up to me after shows and just want to. Share their theories about queer, whatever.
1: (laughs) Explain yourself to you. (laughs) Yes. You
0: know, and I've had several people try to tell me, like, they don't believe that males can be bisexual. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, it's like, where do I even start unpacking all of the shit you just said in that very small segment? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then you then you feel like you're like the educator of everything. (laughs) like That gets exhausting too. So I tend to do like I do, I host and produce my own show. And I'm going to continue saying that I host and produce my own show and not hosted and produced because I I feel like we will get back
0: to it. We're just on hiatus. It's on hiatus. Yeah. On hiatus, I am hanging on to yeah. that this is just a temporary temporary break. Yeah. I feel
1: like we'll we'll get back to it and but yeah, so I I maybe because it's I'm not as much. I mean, I do other shows, but um primarily I'm usually getting ready to do mine once a month and so I, you know, I might do another like a couple, I used to make myself do, do somebody else's show. I've done a couple of Zoom mics and I've done uh, one Zoom show that was like a convention, That it was, uh, was nice. It kind of forced me to prepare and I feel like it went well, but yeah, I, I don't know what I'm going to do to, to get back into the swing of things.
0: I wanted to ask kind of what's your arc of getting into stand up? When did you first start doing it? What was your motivation. I'm always curious, because I know you're a writer, I always envision myself as a writer. And then for some reason, I got this bug to do stand up, and though it's a terrifying, frightening thing. So I'm always interested in what got people to say like, hey, I want to get on stage with a microphone and share this and why they started doing it and and how that kind of came about.
1: I remember creating bits when I was still in Texas. So I had like, two pages of Stand up material that I typed up, and I would kind of add to this document and just, I'd probably even called it stand up set, saved it, didn't really think much about it. I was, um, when I came here as a writer, I was introduced to uh, Beth Lapidus, who does Uncabaret, which is one of the longest running female run shows in town. She was started it, I think, in New York, and then now, now it's here, and she's doing it on Zoom someone introduced me to her and said, you know, you should get to know different people in the writing world, in the comedy world, your your goal is to write comedically, you know, and she very graciously had me, you know, come in and uh, almost like an intern, like I worked with her and helped her. And um, she did like a writing workshop kind of thing, which was almost like, Hey, you can take my writing workshop since you helped me out with a show, like a trade sort of thing. And um, at that time, I was still just thinking of myself as a writer. I'm writing for television and film and storytelling. And I did some storytelling workshopping in her class. And then she was like, Well, do you have anything else? Like, what else do you got? You know, because I, you know, we're, this class was ongoing. And I was like, Well, I have this like stand up set that I wrote, I don't know, a couple of years ago, but I guess I could do that. And so I, you know, busted that old material out and I had a really good, solid laughs and like reaction. And believe me, this class, they're great, but they weren't laughing at your crap if it wasn't funny. So I felt good enough about the reaction I got. And she even said something to me like, do this. You know, it forces you to be funny in the, and be quick and like, yeah. if you can distill it down to the the funniest thing. So, yeah, and then through my uh interaction with her and, you know, I met other comedians going to a ton of shows myself. I love stand up since I was, you know, probably not even in junior high. I was like a big fan of Carlin and Pryor. And uh, I get that from my dad. I like to say I get the love of comedy from my dad, but the being a writer is from my mom. So I was kind of really immersed in this world. And then I went to a show at the clubhouse in Las Feliz from somebody that i would met at a show that I went to every week. I was at the show at the clubhouse and I asked the person who was hosting the show if he could give me the contact information for the clubhouse, because I might want to rent a room like rent one of the theaters and I was thinking you know if I want to do like a table read or if I want to do some like a workshop or something and he goes oh yeah if you have an idea for a show that'd be great here's the name of the person and I was like it was just that quick I went I do have an idea for a show I wasn't even asking about to do a show I was asking just for the name of the rental and um, it happened so quick. I was like, I do have an idea for a show. And it was that I already had the idea. I just hadn't fully expressed it yet. But um, because I'm, uh, I'll am i be 12 years sober in March and I love comedy and sobriety is a huge part of my life. And I was like, I want to do a show that showcases sober comedians. And I already had the name in my head. You know, it was like everything was already there. I just didn't know it yet. I, this is so funny. I booked the room. I started booking the lineup, and I was like, "Holy shit! I have to do. I have to. I'm hosting it. Like I didn't even think <laughs> about that." And I'm like, "What god, am I do? The stuff. <laughs> I know. So, so I already had the material was there, but it was like the panic set in of like, "Oh my god! I have to go to Mike's, and I have to do you know hustle up, you know, to, to get practice and everything." And so it was a lot of nerves the first you know few shows, but um, you know it. It has been running for uh, two years, two and a half almost before we had to go on hiatus. And I absolutely is the highlight of the month. I love doing it. My husband Ryan is the does the tech for it. it so it's kind of something that we. Uh, he always says, it's your show. It's not, you know, it's not my show or I don't, you know, he just does the tech, but he's very integral in making that show happen.
0: I, I love how like the kismet of like how the show came together. Like it was just meant to happen in that moment. Let me ask, uh, how long have you been doing comedy? I guess um, I moved here in 2016. So four okay. years. I definitely drink um, since COVID. I've actually been drinking a lot a lot less because doing shows like five nights, seven nights a week mm-hmm. um, and being, you know, at bars, it definitely presents a lot of that opportunity. So how, how has that experience been for you and has that uh, have affected your sobriety at all? Or has it just been like, you're you're fine, you can handle it. You've been through that kind of situation.
1: I have not had any issues. I've never been tempted to drink when I've been out. I, I find that like, if people know you're sober, or um, even if they don't, most people are more concerned with their own good time. Mm-hmm. So and I'm always leery if there is somebody who's hyper focused on me and what I'm doing, then I think there's something like wrong anyway, with that situation. Like, well, why aren't you drinking? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, come on, I don't trust people don't drink. And I'm like, I don't trust people that are in my business that much, <laughs> like you
0: know. And if I if
1: I'm at a bar, nobody ever gives a crap what I'm doing. Like if I if I'm drinking a, uh, I used to get like a soda and lime, and people mm-hmm. just assume it's a drink. Yeah. And I was like, why am I doing this? Like I'm doing this to make them feel better. Mm-hmm. Like I don't. I'm okay. I don't need to drink something that makes me think about drinking something else. And I haven't had any trouble. But like I said, I'm also coming up like I'm 11 and some change, so. I think if you were like in your first few months, it might be a little tougher. Yeah. Because you're, you're a little closer to the, you know, the drink than further away from it. But, you know, of course, people relapse it uh, with pl- more time than me. So, I mean, it's just a, day to, a day-to-day thing. But if it's, if it's something that you want to do, I will say that uh, I'm kind of glad of this. I don't know what it's like to do stand up or do anything creative drinking. Or using, because I did both. I'm I'm kind of glad of that because there's like, like the idea that I need that liquid courage to get on stage. I
0: don't yeah. because I
1: never had, I, I did everything I did was when, after I got sober.
0: I think a lot of people get those, those things tangled together. Um, I also like, I like just in general that like, when you're going to a mic or a show, like, that's the purpose that you're there for, you know, other people I feel go for other reasons besides that, whether it's alcohol or drugs, or just yeah, gossiping, yeah, or, just
1: hanging out in the parking lot, or, you know, talking shit about other people. <laughs> or whatever. So like that, and I usually do like, you know, leave when I'm done, like, that's, I'm there for that.
0: But yeah, I'm I'm glad that you're, you know, writing and performing and not letting COVID destroy any of your creative energy. I think that's so great.
1: First of all, like if you don't feel like doing anything right now, that's totally normal. And it's almost like for me, I think I just had so much, so much happening at one time. And I'm talking about like, in my personal life, in the losing my mom, the pandemic stuff, the injustice that's in the world. I mean, everything that's happening, it's like I'm going through quite a change as a person. That is all happening. And the way I process that stuff is through writing and therapy, of course, but through writing. And so for me, it's been like, okay, I got to get this down. Even so I don't forget some of the stuff that happened. Because yeah. it's been some some trauma this year and it's like, it's not over yet. So
0: that's what I love. Like you're positive. You're like, you're like, even though this is the worst shit, I am going to, you know, share this experience. I'm going to turn it into something positive. I'm going to turn it into something creative. Yeah. And I think that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I, uh, I think that's a, we're trying to leave everything on a positive note. Uh, I feel like we could talk all day. Yeah. I'm really enjoying talking with you. So we'll have to, we'll stay in touch for sure. Yeah, definitely. I did want you to, uh, if you want to share how, how folks can follow you, find you, connect yeah. with you.
1: I mean, the absolute best place is my website, just because it has all the links to social. So my myfirstandlastname.com. It's just Janet Quinones. I want to mention that the show, when it does come back, it's called Drunkalog, which is if you're not sober, some people do know this phrase or don't know it, but basically in recovery... A -a drunkologue is somebody who is like going on and on about the good old days or they're trying to impress you with how bad it was. Mm. And it's sort of frowned upon in a recovery setting to do like a big like, well, I smoked so much crack and blah, 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 whatever it is that they did. Or I stole a car and did this. And they'll tell those long stories about how it was when they were drinking and using. Anyway, it's frowned on. But like, I was like, well, a -a drunkologue is something that like, this is the place to do it, right? In a show setting that's like for our entertainment. You talk about how bad it was and tell us about your rock bottom. So, uh, so it's uh, it's at Drunkalog show.
0: Well, thank you so much for doing the podcast. It was so nice. Yeah, it was so much fun. You me meet you and next time I'm in LA, we should definitely hang out.
1: We shall. I will definitely, we will. And keep in touch with me. I'd like to keep the conversation going, so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you.
1: My name is Janet Quinones. I'm the host of Drunkalogue. So some of you know me, some of you don't. So for those that don't, I am married. Uh, I love being married. I love it so much, I've done it twice already. (laughs) Um, yeah, the first time was for 11 years, and, you know, a lot of my friends asked, you know, what went wrong? Everybody always wants to know what happened when you get a divorce, right? Um, and, you know, honestly, we had so much in common. We had the same taste in music. We both liked to go to the movies a lot. We both liked baking, uh, and we both really like having sex with men. So, yeah, <laughs> didn't work out. But all's well that ends well, because we're still friends, and we still talk about once a month. Um, and you know now, instead of having awkward conversations about his dude on dude porn search history, uh, we have conversations about our husbands. And then, time allowing, we talk about the latest dude on dude porn releases. Yeah. I, I am remarried. Uh, my lovely husband is in the audience tonight. Yes. Um, We're coming up on three years of marriage and he's awesome. He loves video games, which uh, there's this one that he's playing right now, it's called Stardew Valley. It's just essentially a farming game. That's the whole goal is to plant crops and harvest them. So he's always trying to get me to play this game. And so he'll say, you know, Janet, come on, like I'm harvesting strawberries right now. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, to this, I'm always like, uh, the last time a white man tried to get my Mexican ancestors to pick strawberries, (laughs) it did not go very well. Um, Yeah, I'm not falling for that one twice. Uh, Yeah, so I stay away from that. Um, But My husband is a really big fan of that band Fish. Do you know this band? Oh my God, it's awful. Uh, Yeah, so it's like, it's a jam band and like, no offense, okay, it's not my thing. But um, I let him name the cat. So now our cat's name is Fee, it's not short for Phoebe, it's F-E-E, which is the name of a fish song. And that's not so bad. The bad part is, is he trains our cat. So he's trained the cat to jump through hoops, which is awesome, it's a really fun trick to show people. But also now he wants to train the cat to come to the kitchen when the song is played. So now I have to listen to that horrible fish song for two two times a day for the rest of my life. That doesn't seem like a fair deal. Um, Yeah, but uh, so it is working. The cat does come whenever he plays the song. Uh, I try to explain to my husband, he's not coming because you're playing the song. He's coming in spite of the fact that you're playing the song. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, my husband doesn't want to hear that, much like the cat and the song. But, you know, I'm always the oldest person in class, like I take sketch class, and there's plenty of roles for women. There's Mom, there's Hot Girl 1, there's Hot Girl 2, and you know, I'm like, I can like take one guess at what role I have to always play. They're like, come on, Janet. You're like such, you got that mom vibe. Like, come on, you're such a good mom. And I'm like, there's only two women in this class and there's three roles. Why can't I play hot girl one at least once? And they're like, well, you know, Todd just does such a much better job than you. (laughs) So whatever I mean if you ever want to know like where you are in your age range like and you want to know that you're firmly in middle age take a sketch class and see what role you get assigned to play
0: yeah thank you to Janet for sharing her world with us special thank you to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help producing and editing the podcast find us on social media say hello We're at Queer to My Heart on Twitter and Near and Queer to My Heart on Facebook and Instagram. We hope to hear from you. Send us an email, Queer to my heart at gmail.com. Say hey, we would love to say hi. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all next episode. Thank you.